Talk Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Obsessed episode number 306 was recorded live November 11th, 2016. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, enjoying the uh, very nice weather. Yeah, we're unseasonably warm for this time of year, almost halfway in, into the month of November. Joining me this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, today, Kevin? I am doing truly excellent, Darren. How about yourself? I am doing fine myself. I had a wonderful couple days of the clear liquid meals and had my, uh, I guess it's a what you call it, the middle age test where they... They send the scope both ways. Oh, t- TMI, TMI. <laughs> so, yeah. Because yeah, you're going to share them, huh? <laughs> well, you, well, yeah, I, I should, well, should I have asked for samples? Well, didn't you get? Normally you get at least color photos. Yeah, they, they gave you the uh, the knockout drug where you're supposed to not remember. I remembered too much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm envisioning too much right now. I mean, it's like. Yeah, you know, the, that's a heck of a visual there, Darren, really, you know. <laughs> it's a whole different type of diving. Really, yeah, you really want to say, well, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. That should not surprise me one bit. That's hey, Darren. this yeah. is from the show that has the bad scuba joke, so what do you expect? But, you know, every, everything so far is good, so I'm I'm cleared to dive again. Oh, it's good. Everything came out in the end, then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more than once. Oh, yeah, that, and, and Mac, I take it you've probably had that test a couple times? Uh yeah. Yeah, the uh, whoever came up with saying that that's flavored, <laughs> I hope they didn't charge me extra for the flavoring. You got to keep it cold. I did keep it cold. It was in the refrigerator. Yeah, so everybody at some, at least, I, I don't know, women, do they do that? I think they do, but. Oh, yes. Yeah. But, oh, uh, and women have it a whole lot worse. They got a whole a whole other bunch of spectrum of tests they have to go through. Oh, certainly. So. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not wishing it on anybody. Just to be able to relate uh I, I had dodged the test a few times, and I think everything finally caught up with it to, to do it. And the one thing about being on that type of anesthetic is I ha- I lost all sense of time from last week to this week. It seems like it's been five weeks. I It was bizarre. Wow. Yeah. It's just, it, it's in a certain way, it's good. It's, it's It was almost like going on a vacation, really lousy vacation. But, but it was that same kind of feeling where I got back to work, and I felt no stress because I couldn't remember... <laughs> whatever projects I had 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 to do. <laughs> Got a living through chemistry. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Little little pharmaceuticals, and it makes everything better. Isn't that the the mantra now? Uh, you could have a little more roofy there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe I should ask for. Okay. Well, enough of that fun talk. Let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. I'd like to thank everybody who's joining us week and downloading the podcast. Uh, we have been doing very well with. With download numbers, not a lot of people in the chat room. Maybe they're not used to 
us back on our 9 o'clock time, but we've been getting emails and uh, downloads. So thank you once again. First article up on the list is a 60-year-old scuba diver survives 17 hours lost at sea. Tuesday, November 8th, many things went wrong for Australian John Leslie, was that Briarly? When he decided to go scuba diving off the coast of Queenland, the 68-year-old was rescued by Coast Guard Monday after spending 17 hours adrift and is recovering in the hospital. The chopper crew were fantastic. The hospital staff has been fantastic. The police did a great job, Briarly said. He told the ABC News, which is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. He was out sailing when he passed a famous shipwreck. When the conditions excellent, decided to do some scuba exploring, but strong currents began separating him from his boat, and he wasn't able to narrow the gap. Sapped of energy, he opted to drift instead, and by the time he was rescued, it was 16 miles away from his yacht. So if I guess he could blame the captain, couldn't he? Yeah, himself. <laughs> he did own a personal locator beacon, but had taken it out for cleaning and forgot to return it to its case the day of the dive, making his predicament even more dire. That it was a tragedy because I had done gone off the helicopter had come straight for me and they'd know exactly who I was and what was happening. Fortunately, did email a friend before setting to let him know the contact authorities didn't make it back by a certain time, but by the time the searchers found him, he had had a hard ordeal. I swam from 2.30 in the morning until 12 when they picked me up. No food, no water. I've been awake since 4.30 in that morning. I was just absolutely amazed that I had the energy to do it. Close call doesn't seem to have deterred Briarly, who said he's not putting off solo scuba diving. So it appears to be that his mistake was not following his own plans. Well, it sounds like this, this is going to fall right into my presentation, which is called Four Reasons Divers Die. So just remember this one when I talk about another episode at the end of the little items. Okay. Well, and it's also a, a situation where he had a number of bad things happen that kind of ganged up on him, and that's, that's what nearly took him out. We're usually prepared for, for one emergency, possibly two, but, you know, clearly he had several of them, and it was just more, more than he could handle. But, fortunately, you know, he was found. Yes. Yeah. Now, they didn't say, but they kind of implied that the, uh, his buddy had called and had noticed him missing. So he did at least do that right. Well, call a boater plan. It's never yep. a bad idea. Yep. Mm -hmm. But for getting the locator beacon, I mean, to, to, to have one and not have it on you when you, when you needed it. Yeah. Uh, wow. That had to be the epitome of frustration right there. Yeah, you know he was kicking himself quite a few times for that. Yeah, he, he probably dislocated his hip kicking himself so much, I imagine, yeah. out there. And how's this for an incident? Upper fern, uh, fern tree gully man injured an explosion called, caused by scuba diving equipment. Man was in his 40s, was flown to hospital after being seriously injured in an explosion caused by a gas cylinder used for scuba diving in his garden shed on Melbourne Cup Day. <coughs> Knock Sergeant Mark uh, Preston said the force of the explosion propelled the gas cylinder, causing it to break a man's leg. The man also had burns to his head, back, and hands and legs resulting from the explosion. Neighbors provided first aid by cooling the man's burns before paramedics arrived. An ambulance Victoria statement said due to the potential for burns to the airway, which could swell and restrict breathing, paramedics put the man in an induced coma and inserted a tube into his airways to take over breathing. He's flown to Alfred Hospital in critical condition. Now, there's something that strikes me odd about this story, and, and can either of you tell me what it is? Pressure disc? Well, not necessarily. Now, in a gas cylinder... When it explodes, would there be flames coming from that? 
good point. Yeah, it's not. So, it's uh, just it's just compressed air. It shouldn't be right unless something else. Unless did it explode from heat? I mean, was there some other kind of fire in there already, which which made made the tank explode? Well, that's what I'm wondering. Is it had the because they 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 said they treated from burns, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, it broke his leg, so the 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 cylinder exploded, propelled, hit him in the leg, and broke it. What's that? was believable but then they said that they were treating him for burns and i'm thinking what kind of burns do you get unless there's some physics i don't understand it doesn't seem like a cylinder exploding from some sort of rupture would do that now the fire could be there could have been a fire in the shed uh and he was going in for that and then the tank exploded you know it heated up enough where it ruptured that would make i would think it would be quite the opposite because really you know we, we know when a when a tank is filled, compression causes heat, but expansion takes away heat, makes it cold. So if anything, when the tank exploded, it would have got very, very cold. I guess the other thing, could this have been a uh, an incident where it wasn't, there was uh, some petrochemicals in the tank and, you know, he dropped the tank and it, you know, it burst? I mean, is that possible? But is there is there flame and explosion with that? I mean, there's a explosion from a rupture, but is there flame when you have that sort of situation? Well, you know, to, to, have, to have fire, you've got to have fuel and you got to have spark. Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and, he, and he and and just just dropping it isn't necessarily going to give you the spark, especially in the out. I mean, yeah, I, I think they're, they're, we're missing a part of the of this story here. But there must have been some external co- uh, source of heat which caused the tank to explode. Either that or his neighbors, when they came over, were just treating him for, you know, they thought he had burned, and maybe he he hadn't. And then you have the story as, dic- as translated to the newspaper by the neighbors, and that's how it got written up. Well, that, that's quite possible as well, because if, if he was in close enough proximity to the tank when it exploded to break his leg, you know, he probably had shrapnel and pieces and hamburger hamburger everywhere, you know? Oh, I mean, yeah. Uh, to a person coming up on an accident scene, especially if they're not trained, they're not going to really be able to, you know, differentiate between lacerations and burns or, uh, you know, this, this would have been a, you know, a pretty severe injury when it happened, I'm sure. I'm looking at another article, just did a search on this gentleman's name. And of course, I'm just curious about reading it. The only thing I could figure out is if you had a gas cylinder of pure oxygen, and it's called uh, the diesel effect. Yeah. But he was trying to use that for an example. If you were using a high-pressure gas, you were using it through a manifold to feed a gauge, to do calibration of a gauge. And if the gauge happened to be contaminated, for an example, with uh, hydrocarbons, mm-hmm. and you did an instantaneous zero to 2,000 pounds, you then have all three combinations of fuel, uh, obviously oxygen and heat, generated by the instantaneous pressure. And it'll actually explode the gauge, and at which time you can get a flame and fire from that one because the oxygen also acts in it as, a, as an extreme accelerant. Yeah. And then you could have got a blowtorch effect. Well, and that that would that sounds possible. And then maybe the fact that Mike, you know, he was in the shed, maybe he was doing some gas blending, and it went bad or transferring. Could he have been doing, uh, you know, transferring from one cylinder to another, trying to top one off? And you could do the same thing by, like you're saying, high-pressure oxygen, doing a mixed blend, and have particulate, meaning a petroleum particulate, in the valves and whatever, and start and, and create an explosion. I don't it know. It sounds we'll, interesting. It would be interesting to have more details. Yeah, because it could be – because I, just when I saw that burn, I'm thinking, well, what, what ha- the you know, where would the burn come from? 
Okay, the DNR is cracking down on fossil. Well, I know it's been a very popular pastime. Isn't there a, a quarry? I don't know. Mac was talking about a quarry he likes to go to where that that's legal and, and they do that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So uh, what they noticed is cars and trucks were pulling in one behind another along county roads to four hole swamps. It was which is a title. It uh, was Eddie Ed's That's the Edisto River. Edisto River. River, by the way. Where is that? It's down by Cooper River. Oh, near the Cooper River. Okay. Miles downstream, the same commercial scuba boats kept coming back to the same spots. State wildlife officers want to know why. That's what led to the crackdown on illegal underwater collecting of fossil shark teeth, spear point shipwrecks, and Civil War pieces, as well as other historic and prehistoric artifacts. Since 2015, the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources cited 19 people for collecting without a license. The charges are misdemeanors. The officers found collectors using rakes and shovels, and at least one case, a screen like you'd see to separate gold flakes panned from a stream. And it wasn't just for fun. At least a few of these collectors were looking profit. Premium fossils, sharks, tooth can be worth more than $1,000 on the trade market. People are actually wading the river collecting by hand, said Captain Lee Ellis of the State Department of Natural Resources. Collecting fossil teeth by any number of shark species then once haunted the low county as a pastime for hundreds. Collectors comb exposed beaches and shoals in low tide and dive inshore and offshore. The teeth of all sizes are left from a time when the region was under the ocean, washing the beds the sea levels retreated. To this day, current picks for fossils and toss them along the bottom. They can be found everywhere and so plentiful that gravel beds are spotted, stripped clean. One year will be full of teeth the next. State laws allows for collecting a reasonable amount of the artifacts, but doesn't specify what that amount is. Collecting the water below the low water mark requires a hobby license and it's illegal to dig for them. Archaeologists have long frowned on the practice. The water is a public ground and a prized tooth as big as an axe could be from a creature two million years old. Megalodon, the biggest shark teeth and biggest predators ever known to exist, estimated to be twice as large as the largest great white, even a piece of potential skeleton left in situ uh, and where that was found could be invaluable to researchers. Divers are required to make quarterly reports of their find indicating location and information. Well, I've got to ask this. If these teeth are so valuable to archaeologists, why aren't they out there getting them? No, well, they can make you I do mean, it. Well, okay, I mean, yeah. Well, okay, this has been a popular pastime of going out looking for megalodon teeth, uh, divers quite some time. And now it seems we have a law which is being interpreted to, you know, because they don't have a, a clear definition of, you know, the, the personal use, of the, the reasonable amount. Now they're trying to, you know, turn, you know, divers looking for megalodon teeth into, into criminals. Well, the, what I'm guessing is that these people didn't have per, the permit, which when we went down there, that was one of the things that we got, uh, or we filled out the paperwork for. The dive boat was the one handling those. Yeah, but like they said, there's not a reasonable amount. So if I w- if they had gotten me on it saying it wasn't a reasonable amount, I'd say take me to court. We'll have fun in there. Yeah, well, you know, a reasonable amount is such such a vague term that you know, and they, they, they they're the ones that have to prove that your your five megalodon teeth are an unreasonable amount because you know pe- people who are finding these teeth they're not coming back with sacks of them. They they, they they they're glad to find a you know a handful of ones which are presentable. Well, I think what the, what's coming down to, uh, and where they they could run into the issue is if if I'm a tourist and I'm down there and I go and I find fifty a day, say it's a great trip and I do that for a week, I think that's more than a reasonable amount. Uh, what they're probably after is somebody who's doing it 
say, 180 days a year and and collecting tens of thousands, they're going to say is unreasonable. Now, if the South Carolina version of Mac is down there, retired, just enjoys it, he could easily do that many, and I would call that a reasonable amount. This is interesting. I first met, you know Will Banks, correct? Yeah. Okay, I first met him in South Carolina when he was working with the University of South Carolina, and they implemented the requirement for a license to do artifact recovery. And this was not shark teeth. If you're familiar with Columbia, for example, and look at the state house, you can see across from the Broad River where they were shelling the state house. Well, depending on where you're at in South Carolina, you can find all sorts of Civil War paraphernalia and relics. Mm -hmm. They wanted to make it such that when you found a cache of something of more than one, probably, because you're not going to talk about it if you find one item, that they got what they wanted out of it, which is basically all of it. So that's when they implemented the permit system that would cost you every year. And then from the aspect of taking a picture of it, letting them see it, and then they can have their pick, that's one thing, you know, free free market value type. But like you're saying, if you look at it, it goes to shells. Look at the writing for it and what it includes nowadays. It's quite interesting. Well, here they're talking about, so you got teeth where they're coming downstream, but then they're trying to make a position that the value of it is the discovery in situ, which means in the placement of, of where it's at. Well, they're not going to be able to figure it out because it's, it's moved. Yeah, they say right in the article about how you come, you can, one area can be cleaned out one day and you come back the next and it's, it's, it's full of teeth again. Yeah. I mean, so. Where, where it's found is pretty irrelevant. Yeah, this stuff moves around all the time. But that's kind of the always been the argument of archaeologists is they want nobody but them to be able to look for it. And I came across another article this week. It wasn't related to scuba diving, but it was talking about citizen scientists and how there's a lot of, uh, you know, the professionals, which professional means I'm a 12th year grad student or professor at a university and I'm using government money and grants to keep myself going. Uh, and if citizen scientists will do this for free, then you're taking away work from them. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to have all, any anthropologists or archaeologists in our audience are going <laughs> to probably send the hate mail to Kev, attention Kevin at Scoop Obsessed. But uh, I want to encourage our listeners, look up Heinrich Schliemann. He was an archaeologist in the uh, 1870s. He's the guy who discovered Troy. And he was an amateur Okay, um, and, and he turned the whole historical society on its ear internationally and really ticked off an awful lot of people because of what he found. Although, in all fairness, I'll say he, he also ended up bulldozing most of Troy. But uh, what, what he found and what he did um, has been the envy the world over. Okay, um, yeah, it's a very interesting story. Um, listeners, take a look, a look at Heinrich Schliemann. Whether you looked up the Wikipedia article on him or the different stuff about the jewels of Helen, uh, fascinating story about what an amateur archaeologist did. Uh, you know, some of the greatest uh, you know finds of you know the 19th century are attributed to him. The uh, the death mask of Agamemnon was found by him. Which it's authenticity. Read the article, make your own judgment on it. There, uh, the jewels of Helen recently recently t- turned up in Moscow. Uh, you know, read up on this stuff here. Fascinating historical stories here. Um, again, all done by an amateur archaeologist. Yeah, I, I think, and here's my prediction, is that in 20 years' time, 
you're going to see the professional archaeologists working in partnership with the amateurs, and those that embrace that will be doing ten, getting 10 times the results than anybody else. So say you want to do a study on water quality, what better way of doing it and what an economical way of doing it than partnering with scuba divers? We're getting in what? the water, we're getting in the rivers, how often? I'm sorry, Mac, I talked over you. No, no, no. I was going to look to finish there, but I was going to talk about what that hobby license actually is for the Carolinas, if you're okay. interested. Yeah, go ahead. But they claim it as, um, not claim it, in an effort to preserve and protect the Palmetto State vast underwater archaeological and paleontology legacy, uh, the South Carolina Underwater Antiquities Acts, and that's what it's called, permit small-scale, recreational, non-mechanical, non-commercial surface collecting in state waters. All right, but you need to be licensed. The hobby license, you can get one for six months or two years. And they say that's like fishing license, wildlife license, okay? And it requires responsible collection activity and reporting of any property recovered from submerged sites in public waters. It says in exchange for reporting the details about the number, types of artifacts and fossils, participants are granted title to 100% of their fines. The hobby license allows for the collection of exposed artifacts and fossils from submerged sites, but does not permit digging or movement of sediment to exposed materials. And this has been going on since the 70s. Now, the next little item talks about not only how to obtain it, but it says, what is the difference between an artifact and a fossil? An artifact is any, I stress the item, any object 50 years or older that was made, altered, or used by man, which includes bottles, ceramics, coins, tobacco pipes, artillery, stone projectile points, meaning arrows, um, spears, are all artifacts. Now, remember what I just said, bottles that are over 50 years old. So, so Mac, this means that if you were eight and you made a bottle in your art class and then you stuck it in the river, if you went back today, it is now considered an artifact? Oh, absolutely. Unless I can show title and then they're going to get me for polluting or for, <laughs> yes. you know, doing something to the waterway. Then it differentiates, say, a fossil is a mineralized or petrified remain of an animal or plant or its impression in stone. And then mineralized shark teeth, animal bones, plant fossils, or plant remains or fossils. And then it tells you how you have to report them and where you report them. But 50 years? Now, if you go to Michigan Law as a metal detectorist and you look up the way they have written it, if I go out and I pick up a dime that's 51 years old or a penny out anywhere, it belongs to the state. Now, obviously, they're not going to enforce it, but let me tell you, you find something that's half-assed worth something, oh, yeah. you know, old doubloon or something, they want their they want their percentage. For percentage, they want the whole thing. Well, that's what I meant. It's yeah. theirs. Well, it's not yours. Well, it's just like the boats. They, 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 the, they want their 100 percentage. Yeah. So at least in South Carolina, talking about for reasonable, you know, again, what is reasonable, what is quantity, it doesn't say. It, goes, it just keeps going back to, I think that Great Britain has a, better, a little bit better approach to this where if Absolutely. they're going to take it they pay for it. yeah uh, but free I'm, market value but i'm wondering who, who was it that establishes the value on that great oh, in britain my yeah. thing, i believe it was the museum aspects it's one of those items that is it's pretty fair if you if you read about some of their efforts over there yeah because they had that gold ex- hoard that ex- ex- extremely reasonable yeah. meaning it, you'd rather contact them because then you're going to get free evaluations of what you got plus uh, yeah you get free evaluation the uh, they protect it, like if that that guy you found, because they've, they've had three or four gold 
uh, hordes over the last 10 years. And that one, the guy found that he, he said he couldn't sleep at night because he had so much money worth of gold in his house. So that's when he reported it. And yeah, I don't think we're going to solve it today, but uh, we need, that's one of those rules that we need to revamp. Well, well I was for it then, but again, they, they say it's not for the normal guy. It's for those who abuse it and try to make it a commercial venture, making lots of money. Well, that's what the law's written about, but it kind of sounded like when they were busting divers who were on a, you know, on a commercial charter boat. I don't imagine if, if you're out there on a commercial boat, if, if you're paying the fees to be on a commercial boat, I don't think that you're doing this for a living. There you go. I don't either. So. Yeah, well, I would like to see some, if you're a dive shop in the area, I think uh, you might have a position on this and that you should be contacting your local representatives and saying, hey, you want some tourism income. Maybe you might want to be enforcing it the way you are. Right. Right now it's considered a misdemeanor. doesn't say about what quantities or anything and whether or not you have a license. If you had a license, then they take it away from you. Well, what I do know is that uh, I have talked to divers who are regularly doing trips down there. And in the past, they would do like we did when we went down Mac, which you fill the paperwork down there in the boat. But now they're getting so strict in the enforcement that you need to apply for the permit in advance and have the permit before you go down there. Yeah. So there are so there are dive shops where they have a, you know somebody cancels they have a spot open up but they can't fill that open spot because they don't have enough time to get the permit. Yeah. Now the other item is they do have special conditions for collecting from shipwrecks and there they identify no more than ten artifacts a day may be recovered from a shipwreck site. They may not destroy the integrity of the ship's structure by removing or moving timbers, fittings, fastening, or machinery. Hobby divers who have recovered any artifacts from a shipwreck site must include in the report both a locational reference to the shipwreck site by locating the site on topographic or hydrographic charts, sketch map of the wreck area site showing the location, and uh, it talks about federally owned vessels are exempt from collecting, like the USS Dai Chang, I'm not familiar with it, and then said federal regulation prohibit disturbance of ships, of certain shipwrecks and carry stiff fines and on and on about that a little bit. Yeah, well, pretty much anything which has been a, anything which has been a, a military vessel is, uh, pretty much been off limits anyway. So that's, that's nothing new there. So if you have a merchant ship and there's a ship's bell there, can you bring that up? I would think so because one, it's 10, ar- 10, ar- 10 objects a day just do the reporting part. The key item, though, they said licenses or licensees must never dig or move sediment to expose fines. A hobby license will not protect you if you're caught using any digging implements anywhere in state waters. And that's talking about shovels, scoops, rakes, and screens. Or river tools. Or river sticks. No one's permitted to dig in the banks and beds of any state waterway. But you're not digging. You're holding yourself in position. It doesn't. It really doesn't say river sticks. And I think when you talk about a nail, I'm 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 sure they're they're going to have a hard time pressing that because that's a safety item. Well, I I agree, but I tend to go with a uh, pickaxe, and I think that their interpretation of that is well, that's for digging. But I just happen to like the the physics of it, with it being a a heavy head, wood handle, strap on my wrist, and it bites in when I need it to. Yeah. Well, we're also looking at what the law is in South Carolina. How does that, I mean, what's what's the law, you know, here in Michigan or for our listeners in Illinois? I mean, everyone's going to just have to be familiar with, with, with the laws in their state. Oh, you, you certainly need to check and you're responsible for them. And uh, we don't issue bail money as part of the program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what, what level... What level of Patreon um, gets you to build get, get, get out of jail here? So, yeah. 
I, I, I hate to even joke about that because I would hate for somebody to, to be calling me up. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I was kidding, guys. Ho, ho, he, he, ha, ha. There is no level of Patreon which gets you out of jail, okay? <laughs> so, and, and, and in but, Michigan, you can't take anything but if, off if, of you, if you do the $300 a month Patreon level, I may be willing to visit you in jail. Yeah, and we might even like send you a hutchie or a bow or something. Maybe we could do a jail podcast. Yeah, can, can, can we maybe. can we bring a hacksaw and a cake? We'll bring. We'll, we'll all be in jail then. <laughs> you know, so yeah, it, it kind of sounds like a Three Stooges sketch, actually. Well, so the key, the key item is when you find something good, visit it once a week. Don't tell anybody and go at night. Yeah, I, that's what I was wondering: is how long do you have for the paperwork? I mean, because you get you get the permit in advance, but you have to report your find. How many days do they give you before you have to actually report it? Oh, I thought it was, I can't remember if it was 30 or 60. Oh, if you got 60 days, so that's 60 times 20, so you got 100, you know, one, yeah, yeah, so, uh, it, you could, you could get quite a bit off. More than probably, I'd probably be bored by that point in time. Unless it's gold, then that might keep my hands going for a while. Key item though is, like you said earlier, if you're metal detecting, hunting, bottle collecting like we do, uh, Check the laws in your state because I'm curious how they would apply this to a ecology dive like we just finished doing. Are they going to go through our oh. junk and say what we've got is, oh, my God, bad? Well, the, the, what's interesting about that is did we bring up any uh, – we probably did have a couple items. But most of the items we had were over 50 years old, I would – not might yeah, not have we, been 50 years old from when they were in the water. And they were not and, – and a lot of that was under the surface – you had to sort of work to get it, or part of it was out and you dug it out. It, by was, hand. it was exposed, but to me, if you okay, let's say you have a bottle and it's half in the bottom. If I pick that out, I'm not digging. Yeah, but what what we did down there was you know completely with the township's blessing. I mean, the township brought us down a, down a dumpster. Um, it's not like we were doing anything you know, under cover of darkness out there. We, we had our own sheriff's deputy uh, monitoring the surface. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean that doesn't that doesn't change the law. That's just that you have local, <laughs> you've co-opted local officials to help you. <laughs> well, yeah, but then okay, but we're not saying. But at what at what point does an artifact become garbage? Because what we were doing, we were pulling garbage out of there, you know. And yeah, the, the whole one man's trash, another treasure. But you know, I mean, what we pulled out of there, I would. Hey, if any museum wanted to put it on display, more power to them there. Uh, but uh, uh, and that would probably be the the people who would be upset first. Uh, you know, the, we we have a pretty good relationship with a lot of the museums in our local area. But say there was a you know ancient lumberyard archaeology company or, or agent, you know museum, and that just happened to be. The a lot of the trash coming up was from we've we've since determined it was from a, a lumberyard that burned and was pushed into the river. So maybe they thought of that as an archaeological. Maybe there was something so unique that they were discovering from 1970 that they just had to know. I mean, those guys are going to be upset. Fort St. Joe, how much of that is valuable? Considering that was a dump. I mean, you're talking 1860. Or, no, I take that back. You're talking 200 years ago. So, and it was a dump for how many years? And now you can't do anything in that area. Yeah. And it was junk when people were there. It, if you well, toss away and it's junk, it's it, like you said, fifty years later, it suddenly becomes valuable. It's it's not any kind of a. It has not been declared any kind of a historical site at this point. I mean, if you get some archaeological group in there and they want to get, 
this, you know, declared as a historical site, and they want to start doing their digging, then, yeah, we, we'd, ha- we'd have to back off. But as of right now, you know, it's just like the bottom of any other river. Um, you know, there's areas upstream from there where they're a little bit picky about being, a, you know, historical sensitivity there. But as of right now, we're free to do what we want to do. So, I mean, there's one advantage we have in Michigan with the rivers is that they're considered to be navigable and that they could be dredged. So there's not an expectation of items being preserved in the river. We can have a, another presentation on this kind of stuff yes. in depth during the uh, winter seasons. Yeah, yeah, maybe then another topic to pick up. Well, let's go ahead and hit the next article. British scuba diving charity Depth Therapy gets royal funding. A British charity that used scuba diving to rehabilitate injured military personnel recently received royal funding to buy dry suits and offer paddy open water diver course. Money from the Endeavor Fund, which is part of the Royal Foundation of Prince William and his wife Kate Middleton and his brother Prince Harry, will pay for dry suits as well as paddy open water diver courses for up to 16 veterans beginning in 2018 taught by the charity Depth Therapy. Their efforts have begun attracting attention to academics and organizations working with agencies at home and abroad to further research the effects of scuba diving on military veterans, particularly those suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, one of the proposed expeditions involves a trip to Turk Harbor in 2018 to study the health of the coral in the region. According to Depth Therapy's chairman, Dr. Richard Cullen, who told DiverNet, the diving challenge is massive, but development opportunities for program members will be amazing and for some life-changing. I, I, I like the idea of this, but I can't help but think you know, that they're helping so few that it almost sounds like a dive junket for the organizer. Well, I think that most of the organizers which are doing this type of work, you know, they are expecting it to get some kind of good PR out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I, I agree. I think there's a lot to be, you know, the the thing that I notice going under underwater is it it creates a calmness and a focus that is just so much greater than being on the surface. I could see how somebody with post traumatic stress where it would benefit them. The other hard part about any of that is getting the money to buy the equipment is one thing, locating it is another, and then maintaining it. Because we've seen that if uh, SAS, for example, did not provide the trainees and training for the chamber in Kalamazoo. Mm-hmm. Or we have it? No, we wouldn't because they can't afford to maintain it. It's maintained by volunteers. Yeah, yeah, it, it's tough to do. And let's let's go ahead and jump ahead. Uh, we've got an article that uh, it says it's related to this. It says treating PTSD with scuba diving. This one's from Huntsville, Alabama. Post-traumatic stress disorder affects more than 3 million people in the United States every year. Thankfully, more ways are coming to treat it. Local scuba diving instructors talked about a unique way and the founding of uh, bearded warriors helping their own. Uh, they said once you get in the water, you become weightless. You also become limitless in your mobility and able to move around and do stuff underwater you can't do above water. I know that feeling is like to get in the water and have that free feeling, says Ty Oswald, a veteran and scuba trainee. Oswald with Patrick Reese is one of the veterans and scuba instructors just began the scuba diving program for veterans recently. The property's water helped them with their therapy, so it's basically called aqua therapy. Both Reese and Oswald saw combat in their years in the military and know what it's like to deal with PTSD. They decided to do something they know and love to help others cope with stresses. And they go on and on and talk about it. So there's another program that, that's doing the same thing. Well, it's certainly a, certainly a very valid cause. And then Cork Scuba Divers raised funds for a hyperbaric chamber. 
Plans are being made to provide a new hyperbaric chamber and court to aid divers suffering from potentially fatal decompression sickness, also known as the Bends. Scuba diving community muster have come together campaign and fundraise for the hyperbaric chamber. Uh, they need to raise more than 160,000 pounds for the piece of equipment, hoping to locate it on a hospital campus somewhere in Cork. The new fundraiser muster hyperbaric chamber project aims to provide the chamber to be used in case of emergencies in the southwest region. I hope that they not only get enough money to, to buy it, but they also have some way of maintaining it. That seems to be the challenge. We've got one here uh, in uh, Kalamazoo, and it's hard to, you know, it's always you hear uh, rumors that uh, it's going to be removed. Yeah, well, for right now, SAS is leasing that, and let's hope it stays that way. Yeah. So. I mean, it's a very valuable tool for divers. I mean, um, you know, it's nice to know a little bit about how you respond when you're getting nitrogen nar- narcosis. And this is, uh, I'm not going to say safe, but it's uh, certainly a more controlled environment than doing it in open water. Um, uh, I agree. You know, I, it, I, I thought it was an excellent I, tool. Oops. I'm Shelby. Yeah, I, I ran it down to, to the, the 100, 150-foot simulation, and... It certainly um, brought my attention to how I respond when I get nitrogen narcosis. Um, you know, as yeah. a relatively new diver, I you know really kind of thought that it wasn't going to affect me that much. And yeah, they definitely are able to quantify the effects of it there. Yeah, you know, this, um, this this might be uh, we did that early on in the show, but that might be something for this winter season. We do a chamber dive and uh, record it as a podcast. Yeah, well, I'm. I guess we talked to Rick about it. I, I I know Rick runs them from time to time. We just gotta you know get a hold of him and find out what he's gonna do his next one. So uh, yeah, if yeah. you want, I will. If, if you want, I can I can do the the, the legwork on that. I got a good report. I, I know Mac has a good report out there as well. Yeah, so. yeah. We, we've all we've all uh, had good experience with Rick and his dive shop. So we just need to uh, pick a date. Gosh, it, it really needs to be before my robotic season takes off this year. Well, I know he likes to have like some minimum numbers too. I, I don't, I don't know how few he'll do it for. Of course, you know, maybe he'll, maybe the, hey, the, the exposure of being on our show, that might help now. <laughs> well, I, I want to say last time we did it, it was six people, wasn't it, Mac? And I we believe did. we did have six in there. Yeah, Plus we had, we had a couple who didn't dive it, but went along. Yeah, yeah, and, and what's nice is he does a, a great presentation beforehand, gives you the history behind it. Uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking the chamber is set up for uh, a tender and four riders. Does that sound about right to you? I mean, I, I've been in it, and I want to say we had four riders and a tender in it there. It might get a little cramped beyond that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. It was because, Mac, it was you, me, Jim Kleeman, Richard. Curtis. Curtis, and the tender. So it might have just been the five of us. I'd have to look at the pictures. Yeah, yeah that was that was, that was was a good one. I enjoyed that. Yeah, but but in any diver who plans on going deep, even, even you know, maxing out sport depths and all that, mm-hmm. um, you know, no, everyone responds differently to nitrogen narcosis. Everyone's metabolism is a little bit different on that. Um, you know, I I know a guy who gets pretty severe nitrogen narcosis at 80 feet. Um, it, fortunately, he, he's well aware of that, and so he just tailors his depth accordingly. Um, it would really be a, a sad thing if he, you know, it wasn't aware of that and found himself at a, at 110 feet and was in real trouble. So yeah, yeah. The, well, the, the, last year they did have one individual in the chamber that went a little bonkers at 60 feet and that's you know you really would like to know that i'd like to know that if i were that person how many wrecks do we have there's not a lot that we're diving that are 
above 60 feet. Uh, you know, Max Rec is, is below 60 feet. Uh, Havana, isn't that below 60 feet? Yeah, well, it's about 50, 55. Okay, so that was just at the edge. But I'd, I'd be shocked if I was diving with somebody on Havana and then noticed that they were narked. You know, it well, depends and, the extent. Uh, and, and you might not notice it because everyone's affected differently. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if, they're, if they're a dark narc, you might not even know what's going on. Um, you know, not everyone gets, gets giddy and goofy when they get narked. Yeah, for me, it's a, it's is mostly tunnel vision. Not saying yeah. that I didn't laugh and talk like a chipmunk. Well, with with, the, with that compressed air on you there, I mean, with that, that PSI, we're, we're all chipmunks. I mean, I know when when I was in there, I got us all singing uh, Chipmunk Christmas in rounds, so we had a good time with it. <laughs> Boy, if you think you're funny at 150, go down to 200 plus on air. <laughs> oh, maybe we should see uh, what uh, Rick's willing to do. That might be the interesting thing: is how how deep would he be willing to take us? Uh, that chamber max is out at 150. Yeah, because we've done max. I think we did 150 the last time. Yeah, we took the max on it. Okay. Yeah. The uh, yeah, he, he he will do uh, a run down to 110, and he'll do a run down down to 150. So that's, there was that's a, just there was a chamber on the other side of the lake here mm-hmm. that took you a lot deeper for special occurrences, yeah. but you paid for it. Yeah, because it takes a lot of air to get down there and time and potential liability. Well, I want to say it was it was a hundred bucks to go down to one fifty. That's what it ran me. So, and I uh, I do it again. In fact, really, just because you've done it once, really doesn't make it a done deal. No. I mean, uh, no. you know, hey, we, we we all age, and you know, with our changing metabolism. I mean, um, I'd re- I'd say any diver who you know plans on going deep, um, probably do it every year. I'm I'm going to. I'm I'm game. Sign me up. Yeah, let's go well, let's do this. It- and and what we should do is we should open this up to the listeners. If you are willing to travel up to Kalamazoo, Michigan sometime this winter and you're interested, drop us a line at the show at scubaobsessed.com or leave a message on our Facebook page and let us know that you're interested. Maybe we'll organize something because I'm sure uh, we could do – you don't all – even though the chamber is limited, the chamber can go down multiple times. So we could uh, organize something on at least one or multiple weekends. Or we could at least broadcast the dates you're going to have it. Yeah. Yeah, so let us know if you're interested, just to kind of gauge it. Because if we if we don't have anybody else interested, then we'll just do the you know the three well, of us. And let's let's talk to Rick first and see how he feels about you know being on the podcast for it. There, I know that you know he's, oh, he's you know kind of he, he's real concerned about liability. I'm sure that he liked exposure, oh, but, but um, uh, he he was on the show last time. We've uh, we've had him on. Uh, he's been a guest. Okay. Uh, he, uh, he he may not remember. <laughs> yeah, that that was in our early days, but uh, yeah, we we did an interview. Uh, Jim Kleeman and I, we did uh, nitrox training with Rick and interviewed, and he, he he came and talked about that. And then uh, we had an episode, and we've got videos posted somewhere. I have to track down where they are as in our pre-videoed well, I, days. I, I just know, like, you know, with the with the hyperbaric chamber, there's a lot of procedure and protocol and all that. Let's, let's I think the next step in this would be let's let's uh, talk to Rick before we get the listeners too much on too much involved with this. Let, let, let's ah, create some demand. <laughs> I'm a troublemaker. This is Rick's baby. If, if, I mean, if we're going to get him on board, let, let, let's keep it. He's going to have some say in it. We know Rick's going to have some say in it no matter what. So let's let, let's get him on board and see, see where it goes from there. So, which shouldn't be a problem. No, I'm, I'm not anticipating any problems. And how about this? Uh, oh no, okay. Let, this next one. Uh, mystery of Acre Tower Shipwreck, they think, is close to being solved. Israeli researchers identify origin of previously unknown boat found off the coast in Israel in 1966. The so-called Acre Tower Shipwreck 
has mystified Israeli researchers for more than 50 years. Discovered in 1966 during the first maritime archaeological survey conducted in the county using remote sensing technology, ship was identified off Israel's coast. To date, the researchers have been um, unable to agree on its identity, and as time passes, the mystery only seemed to become more opaque. It was discovered by the late Dr. Eshla Linder, a pioneer in maritime archaeology in Israel and founder of the Rekonenti Institute of Maritime Studies and University of Haffa, which worked with a British team. Researchers hypothesized the ship sunk at the entrance of the port of Acre by the British during the attempt to prevent entry by the Navy Napoleon Bonaparte in 1799. A map found in the British archive, which allegedly belonged to one of the British soldiers who participated in the battle, indicated that British had indeed sunk a ship at the location and convinced researchers that their hypothesis was correct. However, as years passed, new details emerged, shedding doubt. For instance, Bonaparte arrived in Acre via land, Therefore, there had been no need to sink the ship. Further exploration of the shipwreck revealed the vessel had a smaller than originally believed, 25 meters rather than 45, and in probability was a merchant ship. Uh, during the study of the first scientific evidence, the ship was uncovered. Uh, they said that they found 100 brass nails that were found inside, mostly embedded in the wooden hull. Others were scattered inside the vessel. Two different types of nails were found. Links were approximately 10 centimeters and 6.5 centimeters, respectively. Both type of nails underwent a series of tests indicating measurement of the density of brass, fluorescent spectra, uh, uh, spectroscopic examinations, x-rays examining their chemical composition, optical inspection using a light microscope and scanning electron microscope to determine the quality of metal casings and microstructure and structure of various parts of the nails, examination of rigidity of metal and lead isotope analysis. Well, that's a mouthful. During the final expo examination, the researchers took two brass nails from the ship, two modern steel nails, and hammered them to examine how each nail penetrated different pieces of wood. The last test revealed numerous details, including the microstructure of the nails and the presence of silicone proved that they had been manufactured using the sand casting method. Researchers also found highly proportionate zinc and other substances in the alloy. The composition rigidity of the nails illuminated the manufacturing process with isotope analysis, identified the most probable location of where they were made. Drawing together the findings research formed the following conclusion. The nails were manufactured at a European foundry using raw materials from Britain. In the light of the research finding, we now believe that this is a European merchant vessel sunk off the acre at some time during the first half of the 19th century, the researchers wrote. I'm having a hard time pulling this article up here. I'm trying to follow along with you here, but it's, uh, mm -hmm. I pull it up, it sends me some ads. I had to go to a different site to get that myself. Oh, really? It didn't let, let you in? does not come that way. No? Yeah. Oh. It has some links to some other some other articles and a bunch of ads, what I'm seeing here. So. Well, I got lucky then. It, it, yeah. Unless I, yeah, it's a pretty, okay. Hmm. Well, this kind of reminded me of Eurek uh, uh, Mac that uh, Jim Schultz had done some research, and they were we had uh, contacts down at Notre Dame who were willing to do this similar process on that rack if we could get permission to bring up a board and uh, look at some nails. I'm just surprised that they would rule out it being a, a you know a, a wreck to do with Napoleon's invasion because you know he had supply lines coming in from all all different sources there. I mean. Um, yeah, and it, it may very very well have been a, a merchant ship, but who says he wasn't he wasn't selling to, selling to Napoleon? Yeah, well, the, the I think what they're going back on is that originally it was thought to be a ship sunk specifically to keep Napoleon from invading, that the British had sunk one, and then ah, when, okay. when everything didn't match up, then they went oh because they had 
It's kind of like they made a hypothesis. They found a couple pieces of evidence that made sense, and they tied it together and said, okay, we're pretty good. But since the study, they have gone back and said, well, the ship that we said it was was bigger than the one that we found, so something's not driving here. And then somebody was said, well, if he came over land, why would you sink the ship to keep him from getting there? Just a couple points. But it's, I, I like the, the scientific method of this, you know, the analysis of the, the chemicals and the casting methods. It seems to be recently that a lot has been deter, uh, learned from vessels based on that type of research. I'm just curious about one item I, I've often thought of. All these wonderful things they, they say they understand and discover from old shipwrecks and some of the artifacts. In my daily life and less than a century old, uh-huh. I can't recall any instance where any of that information has made one iota of difference in my life. Well, you, you mean when you're when you're working on putting irrigation in your yard and you find this uh, big piece of steel, you don't send it out to the lab to have it tested? I'm just saying, all those wonderful discoveries and thought <laughs> patterns, it's like, how has that made one difference to me in my life of making a daily living? No, it's, it's not going to. And that's the age-old push and pull of... Uh, you know, some of the academics, because you have academics which are, are working on cures for cancer or uh, advancing metallurgy. And then you have, you know, some of us who love history uh, just trying to put pieces together. And I, I don't think that the love of history necessarily has a return in many cases. Just a side note, not to, not to spark any controversy. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I hear you. There's, there's, I don't think there's going to be a return on investment. Uh, I mean, you could probably draw a long thing saying, you know, because what, what's kind of fun when you do these projects is when you take that object, you know, how, how many times have we heard of an object being taken to the CAT scan? Uh, and it's the people in that, you know, it's, it's nice to get a change of pace and to do something else. You know, you got these tools which are very specialized that do one thing. You know, you take that mummy from Egypt and you put it in the CAT scan, you find something else out of it. But it's not significantly changing anything it's it's interesting i love it uh you know in the case of egypt you might be able to justify it as an roi because maybe you get increased tourism uh from getting it in the news and the media uh as far as you know improving the scientific discovery to, to for people to make a everyday living uh, I, don't, I don't think that's typically happened yeah I, I think it mostly just provides more information for the public and for uh you know the exhibits that they, they, they tie them to you know it's, it's kind of cool and you see that they've done the cat scans because then they can tell you oh yeah this person probably had you know they probably had problems on their jaw because they had their temporal mandibular joint was bothering them or, or their teeth showed abnormal wear patterns and yeah that they can extrapolate a lot of data out of that but is it anything that really changes uh the cause you know the cause of death or um you know you know, what we know about mummies, not, not really. It, it, it's just more information. It's interesting knowing that they did brain surgery as Cro-Magnums or something. Yeah. But it, it's just that. It's an oddity. It's interesting. And you always see that the term, those who do not, what is the real word, um, learn history are doomed to repeat it. Therefore, you need to know what happened in the past. Well, nobody in the future, knew what, nobody right here can even remember, like in some of the surveys for the college students, who the hell president was 50 years ago. Well, plus the thing that is interesting, and maybe it's more of a social experiment than a practical one, is that you're looking at these discoveries through the lens of a modern person or of a person of our time. And if you look at what in the 40s or 50s when they discovered and they analyzed something, and then we look at it now, we have seen that they have ignored nine 
data points out of 10 because it didn't fit in with their view of the world and history at that point in time. So there's probably more being said by what you think it is that you've learned from it than by what you actually learned from. Boy, we're getting deep tonight, aren't we? Well, no, but it's always (laughs) interesting if you did nothing more than look up stuff that has been found embedded in coal mines that have been there for thousands and thousands of years. And then when it cracked the coal, it's like, where did this tool come from? Where did this <laughs> face come from that has tooling on it that would be hard to fabricate nowadays? Mm-hmm. And since it's way in excess of a million years, where the hell did it come from? Now, do any of those tool, those objects make a pinging noise? <laughs> no, because that goes into the next which is <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, because the Canadian military is investigating a mysterious pinging sound coming from the seafloor in a remote region of the Arctic. I said architect. Arctic. Officials have told the BBC strange noise is reported by local people to have frightened animals away over the past few months. Military aircraft conducted various multi-sensor searches in the area. The military says it's so far unable to explain the cause of the acoustic anomalies. The aircraft crew did not detect any surface or subsurface contact. The only thing the crew did observe was two pods of whales and six walruses in the area of interest. A spokesman for the Department of National Defense in Ottawa said the cause of the ping noise, which locals said can be heard even through the hulls of boats, remains a mystery. The sound sometimes also described as a hum or a beep has been heard throughout the summer in Fury and Hecla Strait. Legislative Assembly member Paul Kwasa told CBC about 120 kilometers, which is 74 miles northwest of the hamlet of Iglukik. The area is a narrow channel and then the Nunuvik, Nunuvik? I, I'm adding letters that aren't even in there. <laughs> Nunanvut, which is the newest and largest, least populous territory of Canada, located next to Greenland. It's one of the major hunting areas of summer and winter because it's an area of open water surrounded by ice that's abundant with sea mammals, Mr. Kwasa said. And this time around the summer, we are hardly any. It's become a suspicious thing. Another MLA member was quoted by CBC saying the area is normally a migratory route for bowhead whales and various kinds of seals, but this summer there is none. Various explanations of sound have been put forward by the Canadian press. One is it's a sonar survey conducted by a mining company. The second, it's being generated on purpose by Greenpeace to scare wildlife away from the rich hunting ground. And third, it's caused by military submarines. However, local mining companies assist they do not work in the area. Greenpeace is denied responsibility. Military says no submarines, either domestic or foreign, are known to have operated in the area. The cause of the pings remain a mystery. Well, really, if it was Greenpeace or the military doing this, do you think they'd really tell us they were doing this? Not on your life. Yep. And the local mining company, um, unless they had a reason to tell us they were doing it, wouldn't own up to it either. So, Well, ac- acoustics can have an odd uh, change. I mean, it, it, they, they can travel for a long distance. So my first instinct is that it's some sort of, well, the, the thing is it's, it says it's a hum or a beep. And when you start getting into low frequency ranges, those can carry a long distance. So they can. So it's possible that this could be happening hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from this location between the strata and the ground and just geological formations. It's being focused and is audible. So you can take something at a higher frequency and it just through movement, you know, can become lower. So who knows? It's interesting. And let's not rule out aliens. I was going to suggest that, but I'm not going to go there. (laughs) 
I'll say it, not because I believe it, but I just think it's fun to get people worked up over. It's probably true. That's why you don't want to talk about it. Well, you know, they haven't gotten, um, you know, unnamed official sources haven't been approved to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Can't leak that information yet. You know, they got a trade deal they're working with the aliens on. I think it's just noise pollution from a neighboring nightclub. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, you got one of those, uh, if you go down to Cancun and you got the party boat with the, you got every, the mm-hmm. booze cruises, you got everybody yep. on there. It, it's, it's Miley Cyrus being blasted through the hull of a boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, that'll scare away the local wildlife. Well, how about this for, uh, this might make an interesting noise. Nuclear bomb missing since 1950 may have been found. A commercial diver has discovered the lost nuclear bomb off the coast of the British Columbia near the Haida Gwaii Archipelago. Sean, uh, oh my goodness. Are you guys setting me up on this? Yes, we did. Smyrichinsky? Say that after a couple drinks. Was diving and for sea cucumbers, he discovered a large metal device that looked a little bit like a flying saucer. Canadian Department of Defense believes it could be the lost nuke from the American B-36 bomber that crashed in the area in the 50s. The government does not believe the bomb contains nuclear material and is sending Navy ships out to the site to verify. Uh, the diver came up. Like, Go ahead. Excuse me, but hasn't this been like a popular urban legend? I mean, you, you, there's been chatter on the Internet quite a bit about there being lost nukes out there and, and them being found and them being picked yeah. up and them being well, denied. I mean, well, what, what this one was about was... This, there, there's actually a wreck that has been found. Uh, there was a flight and they were trying to do, they were actually simulating a bombing run with a nuclear weapon. Uh, and the plane crashed and they know where the plane is that it crashed and the crew jettisoned the bomb over water before crashing because they didn't want it to explode when it hit. Now it wasn't loaded with nuclear material. It was TNT and, uh, a detonator it was just it was weighted like an actual nuclear bomb uh but they jettisoned it the the issue is is that the flight path and the known wrecking site does not even begin to correspond with this particular crash site so uh when after you get through all the different sightings and and things about it the military is saying yeah whatever it is we don't think it's a nuke but i to me i i have that roadrunner bugs bunny acme moment where I'm picturing somebody down underneath with a uh, river stick hitting the side of this container and it going boom and then a big mushroom cloud coming up out of the water. I don't know why I find that. Well, if you want something closer to home, factoid, this is not a rumor, this is not a might have, this did happen. This was, I, and I'm from South Carolina, so I know this is fact. But in Mars Bluff, South Carolina, March 11th, 1958, uh, they lost a 26 Kilton Mark VI that fell out of a B-47 Bomber, and that's the one they have not yet recovered. Oh. The second item, fact, <laughs> was uh, I got to get my note here. On March 11th, 1958, meaning pretty close to this, uh, they actually dropped a nuke in South Carolina that detonated. But the explosive warhead did not, the TNT aspect of it uh, exploded, not the bomb per se, made a 75 foot crater. It was uh, 75 feet deep, 25 feet, 35 feet wide, uh, and it did spread some particulates in that area, but it was not a full nuclear-type explosion. That's in a period of two months they lost two weapons. Oops. The 46 kiloton one is still the one that, like a couple of years ago, there was a picture on the Internet saying this is what we found. Mm-hmm. 
And that was not it because it is still missing. I wouldn't. I mean, I I think there's potential for a few missing ones that haven't been found to be found. But I also think there are some that we think are missing that they have found and recovered. I mean, I just can't help but think back to the Howard Hughes project where he was involved in recovery of some vessels to think that. Yeah, with the Glomar. Yeah, that they wouldn't have done similar things uh, with some of these. Because the biggest thing is you you don't want foreign powers who you're in conflict with coming apart coming up with it and understanding your weapon and howard Hughesman was really good though yeah, I, I i love that interested one. Into that you can read up on that guy yeah yeah he, he was he had all sorts of stuff going on yeah he, he was you know he, <laughs> i mean elon musk isn't gonna like that i say that but i kind of think of him as our modern howard hughes to a certain extent he's like howard hughes before he went off the deep end well, that does it for Scuba in the News. We have a couple of videos that are going to be in the show notes. If you want to get advanced copies of the show notes before the show, or if you think the show is at least worth a dollar, why not uh, donate to our Patreon account? Go to www.scubaobsessed.com, follow the links over to Patreon, and a $3 a month donation will get you early access to our show notes. Any dollar amount helps. Uh, we have a couple videos, which you really need to see the video to understand them, and they'll be in our show notes, which Jim Billings has been gracious enough to keep up to date for us. So one of them is a gigantic jellyfish. That is an in video. Not quite as big as that hoax video they have where the jellyfish is three times the size of the guy, but still a beautiful large jelly. And then we have some video footage of the wreck we talked about last week. It was a 132 shipwreck that was found in Lake Superior. Uh, this one's the Huffington Post article, which I'm not a big fan of the Huffington Post, but they, they had a, a fairly decent article on it, and then the video is embedded, and you can watch it. And did you did we have the video link last week as well, Mac? Do you remember? I'm, I'm not sure. I know the one that I, I think, I, is this the one I sent you? Uh, you, you may have. If I did, I apologize because I didn't see it. Because uh, uh, one of them's got a video of them inside and the yes. picture of it I had not seen before, which was the whole cabinet full of china still sitting oh, there. Yeah, that, and that's what this one was, is that the other articles where we had seen the photos, the photos, I think, were taken from the video. I think they were just screenshots of the video. But when you see it in the video, there's something about watching the video as a diver's moving through the wreck that really makes you relate to it and understand the condition of it. This is a special uh, wreck to be in this shape with all these objects on it. Yeah, and this isn't sport depth, as I recall it. They're not giving away a lot of yeah. details, but it's almost like it's, it's, it's less than uh, 130. Yes, so. I, I would. This is this is on my bucket list if they ever uh, give up the numbers or let me dive. I don't care if you tell anybody else where the numbers are. Invite us. We'll, we'll come and do it. This would be a beautiful wreck. Uh, well, for it. For it to be in this good a condition in Lake Superior, there has to be a number of, uh, I don't know, it's got to be something very protected, okay? I mean, this is not out in, the, out in the open water, I can tell you that. This is like tucked behind a shoal, tucked behind an island, um, well, it, something it, totally out of the wind and storms and all. That. This, is, this is a very unique place, I can tell you that for sure. Well, it, it could make sense if it was a, you had a reef that came up to the surface, you know, because it, I don't, it didn't look like it was, it was in very good condition. So maybe it had hit just enough to sink or foundered, but you're right. It's, it's got somehow it's protected. So it's not yeah, getting think, the, the full brunt of those storms. Yeah. Uh, I think this wasn't the story on it that they, they, they backed into a piling or something, put a hole in the back of the boat. They tried to get back across the harbor and didn't make it. And it sunk out and out in a bay some, somewhere, but it's got to be some very protected area to be within mm-hmm. sport depth 
and not pulverized in Lake Superior. Well, they have. Is this the one with the mass still up? I, I can't. You know, now I'm questioning. I know we, we've had a number of stories come through lately about some brand tax shipwrecks. I think the the one that worded the mass still up was the antelope. Yeah, there, uh, there was an article. And I I didn't put it in the show notes this week, but there was one where they had shown the. Uh, I can't remember if it was a NOAA article or National Geographic, but they had done a composite and stitched together the photos, and you could there were two masts upright. God, there's just so many good stories. So little time. Well, they're, they're finding a lot of wrecks. I mean, people people are out there looking. They and uh, you know, and if you if you know where to look and you got the equipment, they are there to be found. I mean, just 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 take a look at the um, oh the the Swayze file, the uh, the Great Lakes shipwreck file, and just scroll scroll through the S's <laughs> and and see and see what the losses are. Now, granted, a lot of those boats were were sunk and re- salvaged and refloated. We have no idea of knowing which ones and how and how many of them were. But it's astounding what was lost out there. I mean, um, it blows your mind. So, I'm sure you've taken a look at the um, the, the Great Lake Shipwreck file. I'm referring to, haven't you? Which one? The Great Lake Shipwreck file. Yeah, I, I've I've seen that. Yeah, I mean, it's just. What I think wasn't that Brendan Ballard or David Swayze uh, they, they they put this together um, for understand based upon the old insurance records and the well the or the was it the registry probably 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 both and it's just a incredible resource I mean looking at and how many wrecks were lost and you know it gives you an idea where where they may be at least where, where they were when they went down what they were carrying the vintage the the uh, <coughs> the measurements. Um, but it just blows your mind how many boats are on that list, and it's not a complete list. Well, we've got a couple of events that people may be interested in if you're going to be in the Midland, Michigan area. The Dive Shop Underwater Antics has some presentations. Bill Atkins will be presenting Saginaw River Shipbuilders, their legacy to divers. This will be tomorrow, so probably when you're hearing this podcast, uh, November 11th at 7 p.m. at the Dive Shop Underwater Antics, which is 639 West Isabel Road, Midland, Michigan, which happens to be my old stomping grounds. I lived there for a number of years. They're only asking that people RSVP as they have limited space. If you missed that one, they have Dale Trotter, who will be presenting new shipwreck exploration discoveries on Wednesday, December 7th at 7 p.m. on the shop. At the same location, they need RSVP spaces limited. As of the time I was talking to him, which was a couple of days ago, they only had eight spots left. So if you want to hear David Trotter speak, which I highly recommend, you'll want to get in contact with them. Their website is www.uwantics.com. And uh, why would you not want to go to Midland, the home of the Tridge? And I was asking them, and they haven't responded yet. I wanted to see if anybody was diving in the river. Which people in Midland may laugh at that because I think pe- I think the locals uh, don't don't have a lot of confidence in the river there. Yeah, I'm sure there's a, quite a bit of pollution there, but yeah, I, I, I could remember uh, going fishing there in the river, and uh, we we uh, what you could do is you took your boat up to uh, Dow Chemical Company, that's their corporate headquarters, largest chemical company in the world, and they would take your boat. If you came up with a boat, they would. They had a trailer there. They would trail your boat above the dam and deposit you. That was one of the law. The when they put the dam in, which helped them generate power or do something. Uh, so what we would do is you would you come up with the boat and they'd move you above the dam or below the dam actually. And you would you what we would do is we would cast a line above the dam and then as your bait came over the dam and down. And this is a a moderately low rise dam, like fifteen feet. Uh, when it got into the turbulence, fish would bite it. 
and we had we had a pretty good day. We caught some fish and we're eating at home. And on the radio, they were warning us that dioxin levels were high and that you shouldn't eat more than two fish. So, you're, uh, but it was fun. And that's in the that ri- that river is known to have higher than normal dioxin levels, which is a byproduct of some of the uh, chemical processes that Dow Chemicals known for. Well, I know that with the DNR Fish Advisory, you know uh, they don't publish it anymore. But you can still find it online. Um, what it is, it's a uh, oh, the, the DNR has done studies on you know how much of the uh, the bad stuff is in fish, as far as the heavy metals, PCBs. And basically, they, they they take the fish and stick it in a blender and calculate parts parts per million on it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you got to look at it that it's the way they break it down is uh, how many meals of these you can eat, you know, per per week, per month, per year. Right. Um, now, granted, some of the fish from some of the bodies of water, they say don't ever eat these fish. Um, not quite sure where the fish in the Midland River fall in there, fall on well, that it, one. It, it didn't. It was, they they had it was it was they wouldn't say it was great, but they said eat no more than two a week. Which unless you were sustaining yourself off the river, I don't see how you would have that that number. Well, yeah, but but some some people would though. I mean, some people if they fish out there a great deal, well, that they I, might be that. I much. could see in the summer. I mean, I'm I'm from the school. If you take it, you eat it. You know, you don't you don't just you know harvest wildlife from the natural resources and and you know throw it away uh, you take advantage of it so i could see if you were having a good fishing season that you might build up quite a bit but you know this is just some notification saying hey you might want to spread that out don't eat all 12 fish in a week throw it in well, the freezer and, and have it over a period of time well and i know with the michigan dnr fish advisor they kind of break it down a little bit further too in that um it's kind of i don't women who intend upon having children you right. know, have, have have a much higher restriction on them than us guys okay um you know a lot of the stuff ends up uh you know in, in your bones as far as mm-hmm. uh the, 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 the heavy metals in the fish end up residing um in the bones and in the fatty tissue which um well when they put the fish in the blender then yeah they get the part per million of, of, of the heavy metals there but you know as a rule we generally do not eat the fat or the bones so it's a little bit um, inflated, shall we say? Um, but you, you still should pay attention to it. But it, it's, it's mostly targeted towards women who plan on having children in the future. So I, I think you were safe, Darren. You could have, you could have had. Do you two think or I more could have had one. some more? I, I was fine for some more. I mean, this I know, was 1982, could, but this could well, explain quite a few things about me. Well, and I'm and, and I'm guessing you did have more than two. <laughs> well, I think we've gotten that time of show where we need to talk about some scuba diving. Not to change the subject, Darren. <laughs> What you been up to, Mac? Well, are we going to talk safety today or what? Yeah, let's go ahead. Let's talk safety in the wreck of the week. So what, what do you have on the safety list? Well, what I'm going to talk about is uh, four reasons that divers die. Now, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. You don't have to answer it yet but because uh, I'm going to fill in all the blanks. I need to take notes. But thinking about what the other guy did earlier in the presentation, maybe we're going to apply it to him too. Pop quiz says, an overweight diver in poor physical condition Returns to diving after a hiatus of uh, several years. Pulls uh, out his old dive gear on a shelf in the garage, hops on a dive boat, and attempts to dive on a current swept reef at 80 feet. Anxious and struggling for much of the dive, he burned through his air supply at an alarming rate. Upon discovering his tank is nearly empty, the startled diver makes a rapid, barely controlled ascent to the surface, but suffers a fatal air embolism. The question is, what caused this accident? Well, I just gave you a couple of seconds. From looking at that, since we're not going to discuss it, but I'm sure everybody has their opinion already, my answer is if you 
you get an A if you said all of the above because he started out an accident waiting to happen. So what they did is Dan did a uh, fatalities accident fatality review. And like they said, as the scenario, which was a composite of accidents found, <clears throat> excuse me, in the last annual report of accidents from Dan, it identified the following issues. Well, most, most, or each accident can be different, and some of them occur in an instant. Most accidents can be represented as a chain of multiple events that lead to a deadly outcome. Removing any link from that chain may change the outcome. So based on the data from this Dan report, they came out with four contributing factors that can lead and often does lead to fatal dive accidents. The number one is poor diver health. They stated that almost any pre-existing medical condition or health factor can affect the diver's safety. The common examples include obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, breathing difficulties, and a general lack of fitness, pre-existing injuries, and dehydration. From all their totaling up, the biggest contributing factor cited was 74% of the fatal cases covered in the study involved divers with a body mass index in the overweight, obese, or morbidly obese categories. Furthermore, it said approximately 15% of the fatalities examined in the study involved people who were known to have high blood pressure or heart disease. Their concern is today diving is open to people with a host of medical conditions that a few years ago would have prevented them or prohibited them from participating in the sport, from the liability for the uh, divers and for the instructors. Well, I want, to out, I want to point out that when you're getting certified, though, you know, you, you do have a, those uh, medical questionnaires, which do ask you a lot of these things about, about high blood pressure. I believe obesity is addressed. I can't say for sure. But at least in the early certification stages, you know, these things are addressed. Yeah, but not validated or verified. You're taking them at the word. But you got a True. piece of paper that said they acknowledge they had no problems when, in fact, they may have. Well, it, so, but the, the thing is, I mean, to take an exception to some of that, is that when you look at the obese tables, it does not take much overweight to be classified as obese or morbidly obese. Right. But you got to remember, they also said general lack of fitness. Yes. Now, no, I do agree with that. Pressure, known high blood pressure, mm-hmm. known heart issues. Yeah. Then they're saying, if you know you have one condition, it's important that you're monitoring it and taking, meaning you're managing your medical situation, such as if you have high blood pressure, but it's being controlled by medication, you do not create the risk factor at anywhere near the same level as if you're not, meaning if it's uncontrolled. So obviously, you know you have a condition, your doctor knows you're going to be diving, you're taking his advice and his medication, and is it controllable? Makes a difference. What they're saying, though, is for the permanent Temporary, any health condition that impedes your ability to be alert, to recognize and respond to environmental conditions, to follow a safe dive plan should contradict you diving that day. But we're that way now also. When in doubt, you don't. They said, added into that, contributing factors are procedural errors. And by procedural errors, they considered the accidents also identified in the Dan report, such as known buoyancy control problems, a tendency for rapid ascents, missed decompression, General skills limitations, meaning they did not dive much past their basic scuba. Air equalization problems. And number one, most critical, is failing to monitor their air supply, resulting in low on air, out of air situations. What that did is lead to panic. 
said, in some cases, divers lack the appropriate training for specialized activities, which we know to be cave diving, enclosed environments, wrecks, deep diving. If people stayed within the scope of their training, they were ahead of the game. But if they did not practice their emergency response skills, they're an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, I, I they haven't said anything in there that I, I don't agree with. Uh, the one thing that, right. that, that the, as I glean from that, and I'm being selective and picking items, but it sounded to me like people who don't dive regularly aren't being conscientious about their health and uh, improving their diving technique. I, you know, if there, there are things that I think even a healthy person doing, like not doing a controlled ascent and not following your safety stops. I mean, you know, those are accidents waiting to happen right there. And as we looked at the gentleman earlier, experienced diver, assayed the conditions, had a few issues, overlooked some items such as his ERB, current, possibly no trailing line. So, Again, this is the, what we're talking about. They further went through and gave, in 20% of the fatalities, an emergency ascent was the precipitating factor. They also said other procedural errors triggered the ascent, such as insufficient gas supply was a triggering event in 14% of the cases. The inability to deal with rough seas and strong currents ranked number two at 10%. Health problems at 9%. Entrapment and entanglement, 9%. Equipment problems, 8%. And there's, a, there's only three critical words that would help any diver be better prepared for dealing with a demanding diving situation. And the three words are practice, practice, practice. A lack of diving skills and experience compounded with unfamiliar tasks and add-ons add to the stress of diving can lead to task loading and inappropriate reaction in a bad situation, such as, as we've talked about, I'm going to do a brand new dry suit dive, I'm going to do it under the ice. Maybe not a good thing if you've never done ice diving. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm going to do that, but it's going to be, oh, I'm going to take my camera with me and try using that too. So you're overloading yourself on new tasks. And we've all discussed how we don't want to do that. Right. Now, have they, did they correlate this to, it'd be interesting to see by number of dives experience and dives within a certain, within the recent time of the event. Yeah. Well, we did that last week, if you're talking, remember we talked about another report they had done. It, it does not give me the quantity numbers. I can probably find it if I go back and read the, the entire report. I just summarized a lot of items. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting. Loss of air is where you're down there, and then you're going to go nutso if you don't have air. And we all know that. That's why you got air, you got time. And if you got time, you can usually work your, through, your way through these other items. Right. Uh, environmental issues. As open water environments can change rapidly, divers who are unprepared, out of practice, physically incapable adapting to those changes can become victims. Meaning, it was great when I went in, but I came up, and I get current was ripping on the surface. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Said so before you dive, evaluate the air, water temperature, currents, wave action, depth, visibility, and then they say everybody should realize diving. Not all diving is the same, and we know. Lake diving is different than pond diving, which is different than river diving. Right. And they said, for example, if you're a warm water diver making your first cold water, the effects of the cold water temperatures can shock you on your first entry. If you're not anticipating that, it can set you off already. So shallow water divers are often surprised by how rapidly they use their air and under and being under the impact of mycosis when their first dives are in the 100-foot range because they've been working at 20 and 30 feet like we do in the river a lot. Finding an unexpected current while exploring a wreck is no fun. 
especially if you're lacking buoyancy control, you don't have the ability to swim in a streamlined factor, your equipment is not streamlined, you don't have the physical endurance to fight the current. Then they talk about equipment problems. While equipment fatalities account for relatively few fatalities, they're one of the most predictable and easily preventable causes of fatal dive accidents. BC issues were number were over seven and a half percent of the fatalities. Regular regulator issues were six percent. Weight systems was five percent. Your mask, fins, dry suit, and computer computer failures were all less than three percent. And it doesn't say it says it is important to note that this does not mean that equipment failure actually caused a fatality. It's the diver's reaction to the equipment failure, which is more likely to impact the outcome. Like you said, most of that is stuff that we already knew, but to remind the new people and do we practice our emergency skills. Yes. Find an excuse to, to do that. Anytime you're out in the water, come up with, just pick a skill to, to train on and, and do it. Well, I know I have not practiced buddy breathing, sharing my air in a long time. Part of it is because we're doing it in the river and we're 10 and 12, 15 feet. But when we're on the big lake, that's something we ought to be practicing. And buddy breathing, are they even teaching that anymore? Well, buddy breathing and or loaning the, your octopus or your bailout rig. It's either way, sharing what air and have you practiced it? I haven't practiced it recently. I've done it before. And actually, the interesting thing is I did that in probably my first 20 dives. We had yeah. a situation where that happened, but I haven't had anything recently. But, yeah, that's a good a good thing to do. Also, if you're uh, breathing on a – if you have a, uh, a bailout, making sure that bailout actually works. Before you get in the water. Yes. Yeah. There's some other good articles in there. It's common sense. Dive within the limits of your training. Get the proper training before attempting any, you know, dive above your normal skill level. Use the right gear. And even though you're an experienced diver, take a refresher course. It will reinforce what you already know, and it makes you think of, well, I haven't done that for a while. I bet anybody who takes a, uh, uh updated course, even if you're diving every week for years, you're going to pick up two items that you have omitted or forgotten about for whatever reason. You just get to where that's not in your normal scope of visibility, and you forget about it. It's, it's, it's always good to do. Yeah. Refresh. It's a- Practice your safety skills, such as when's the last time you flooded your mask on purpose and cleared it, or well, letting your 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 regulator go and can you find it again? Well, also, Sharing your air? if if you're diving in a group, uh, who's trained to uh, provide uh, emergency medical care? I'm talking well, first aid or CPR. Yeah, it says get rescue certified. Yes, I mean because you may not need it, but it'd be nice to know your buddy can save your butt yeah. or. Potentially save your butt. Yeah, and that's one of those items I always grumble about. I was just, in fact, I was just complaining about it this week. Yeah, you know, I, I was first certified in, in CPR probably, gosh, it's got to be 35 years ago. And you have to get, depending on who your certifying agency is, it's one to two years you have to get recertified. So it always seems like you're getting updated on it. But it, you know, it's one of those things you just have to do if you don't practice it and you don't uh, study it, you, you're, you're bound to forget it. Well, it's well, like CPR. It's that, a good, that has changed in 35 years. Oh, it has. It's 100 presses, two oh, breaths. Yeah. My, my problem is I still, in my if, if anybody has an accident, we're going back to 1982 because that, in my mind, is, you know, about the time I learned CPR the first time. And I think in a, situ- a stressful situation, I would go right back to that technique. Remember the Schaefer method? That was used to be the old one, the arm lift, push. No, I, no that was that was before my time. Okay. But we, uh, but well, I, I did have the chest thump 
method we used to do, which resulted in broken ribs. Kevin, you were saying? Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but but back to having a buddy that, that, can, that, can, that can save your buddy, you can save his. Uh, you know, you really should have someone in your group, if not yourself, who is uh, rescue diver qualified. You know, it, it's a real eye-opener taking the course at just how many different situations there are which can, you know, can, can be sent you down there, which uh, unless you're prepared for, have any kind of training or put some thought into beforehand, uh, you're going to be behind the eight ball trying to figure it out when you need it. I mean, really, how are you going to get your buddy out of the water and back in the boat? Right. Think about it. When how I are you the... going to get your buddy, oh, yeah. even just up on shore, or if you're doing a, a dive off, off of a dock someplace? I mean, it's, it's a challenge for a diver to get in out of the water by themselves, let alone trying to bring out, bring out, out their buddy. Um, you know, how are you going to do CPR out there? How are you going to, um, you know, address other kinds of medical issues out there? You know, say they, they go into a diabetic coma or, um, you know, they're all, any of the different situations which, you know, are an inconvenience on land, you know, a, a minor seizure, okay? Uh, how are you, you know, addressing on land is not a big deal, but addressing it in the water is a, a life-threatening emergency. I mean, to take the rescue diver course, what, 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 whichever agency you're familiar with, take it. Highly recommend it. And, and that's the other point that's really good. As a civilian and as a, you and my buddy are going to dive or we are going to dive right solo, you're, you're setting yourself up if you don't plan your dive with those contingencies such as the simple one. Well, I can get in here. The question is, can you get out? Is that embankment too steep? to come back up with your gear. You can always jump off the embankment to get in. And if you look at the, the prep planning for a dive, if you are a police diver, fire rescue diver, the administrative burden is tremendous when you look at their planning, their staging, their contingency actions. They plan for that. As sport divers, we more often than not do not. And that, that makes us, we should think about where we're diving, like when we do the river. What would we do if one of our guys had problems? Especially right now when it's dark and we're doing river dives at night. What should we be doing to help improve the safety factor for all of us? And there's my soapbox for the evening. No, I, I agree with you. Those the excellent. Now, is that article from Dan? Uh, uh, some of the, I, I took all the major highlights out of it. The article's rather large. And um, I will probably put part of this into the next month's uh, the um, newsletter. Up. Mud club yeah, newsletter. I made a modified one for what we talked about last week. I put it in the club newsletter this week. But and, and yeah, anybody, I, like I got the information out so you can look for yourself. Yeah, anybody, whether you're a mud club member or not, can go to mudclub.scubaobsessed.com and take a look at all the newsletters that Mac has been so gracious to do for all the years. And there is good nuggets of information, including mud club members you need to go and read. To keep up to date, <laughs> I have to say I'd be guilty. I, I see the I'm comforted in seeing that the newsletter goes out, and sometimes I don't take the time to adequately read them. But I have gotten the last three or four pretty well. There, it, it's funny you say that though, because I've had more people comment to me who are not club members on reading the newsletters <laughs> than club members. It, you know, maybe maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we should uh, have the Mud Club uh, group where. You know, because you put this effort together, and maybe other dive clubs co-opt our newsletter and borrow from some of this work. I mean, how how many people throughout the world could benefit from uh, that newsletter that we put together? Yeah, and the advantage I have is because I read some of this, 
I may not physically go out and practice something, but it's in my head. Yes. And once it's in your head, and if you think about it with some frequency, it's going to help you and make you a safer diver. Yeah. And that's what, who do you want to dive with? You want to dive with the guys, guys are going to save your butt if something happens. I want to dive with Kevin because he's younger than me. He's had this training and he can help me. <laughs> or who, who, who's the one that you were saying is so strong he can just pick up your tank and gear with one that's hand? John. Of John. course I'm dive with him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he, he's like the ultimate dive buddy. Maybe. <laughs> and, and he lifts Crocs up. I mean, who else can do that? So I have him and John and, and Kevin. I'm in good shape. Get <laughs> me out. And, Kevin give me CPR. I can I can remember when uh, uh, diving with Jim Kleeman. I always felt guilty because he always seemed to have it so together. In my mind, I was just trying. You know, it was like my task loading was just enough. When and that's the irony when you're first diving. If you and your dive buddy are in the same experience level of five or six dives, your task loading is about at the capacity that you can handle yourself. And then you've got a dive buddy you're trying to watch out for. So there's many times where you'd be like, okay, I'm doing all this. I'm doing all this stuff. And then you're thinking, crap, where's my dive buddy? And I'm thinking if in that two minutes that I was trying to get all my shit together, if something happened with him, uh, what would have happened? And fortunately, nothing did. But Well, I'll tell you what. The first time you go out with somebody and uh, you're doing a two-man dive and you believe your your dive partner is drowned, Ooh. it is not a real good, good feeling no. whatsoever. No, I and have it makes not you had. Start thinking about what do you want to do, and that's when you start saying, "I wish the hell he had a dive flag." Yeah, now I have not had that situation, but I have divid, uh, dove with people the first time, and I've dove with somebody the first time and looked at him and said, "You know, you may have only had twenty dives, but you know, you've got it all together." And then I've had other guys the dives I've done with people fifty plus, and going, "You are a wreck waiting to happen." <laughs> Did I lose you? I'm still here. Okay. Yep, same here. Skype is bitching at me. It says there's no speakers detected anymore. Maybe maybe That's it's Skype. our cue. <laughs> That's Skype. Yeah. So what what kind of dives did everybody get in this last week? You ready for the wreck of the week or? Yeah, let's go ahead and do the wreck of the week. <laughs> okay. Let's try to move things uh, on. Yeah, yeah. I just thought that was come up after after Max. Uh, yes. Safety talk there. Okay. Yes, certainly. All right. Well, uh, the wreck of the week featured wreck. Uh, well, today happens to be the. Uh, 41st anniversary of the Edmund Fitzgerald sinking. Oh. And even though it is not a wreck which we can scuba dive, uh, due to the, uh, you know, the importance of the wreck, this, you know, what a awesome wreck it would be to dive, um, I'm going to consider that to be our featured wreck. Um, pasting a link in the chat room here, bringing this one here from uh, the Detroit article. This is cl- Click on Detroit. Um, has an article about 41 years ago, it was going down. Now, I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of the Evan Fitzgerald. Uh, I know we have listeners from all over the world. I'm going to give a brief synopsis on what the boat's all about and uh, go from there. But what we have is the Evan Fitzgerald was your typical straight deck uh, freighter. Um, it was just over 700 feet long. at the, at the at it, In its time, it was the largest ship on the Great Lakes. Went down November 10th, 1975. Uh, with all hands during a tremendous gale. There are many, many theories as to exactly why it went down. Um, we could do a series of podcasts on why it went down. We're not going to get into that here. Um, the fact is that it's a tragedy. The, the ship did go down with all hands. Um, you know, there were there was no distress call from the ship. The uh, ship was being followed by another ship, the Arthur Anderson. They were maintaining radio contact. 
Uh, it was indicated that Fitzgerald was in distress, but they thought, thought they could handle it. In fact, uh, the final call from the Fitzgerald, uh, Captain McSorley stated that we are holding our own. Uh, he indicated that the, the pumps were going, going full time, but he believed he was holding his own. Uh, the ship had a significant list. It was leaning. I don't know what the degrees were, what side it was leaning to, but the ship was was leaning to one side. Um, but he still believed he could, he could make it through, through the storm. Well, obviously he did not. The ship today rests in uh, 535 feet of water. Uh, this is outside the range of uh, you know, sport divers. There are a handful of people in the world who can dive this deep, not uh, you know, something which is customarily scuba dove today. They have actually have legislation against diving the Fitzgerald. Um, not sure on this fact, but I've been told that the fine for diving the Fitzgerald is a cool million dollars. Um, so unless you've got that kind of change rolling around there, probably should not put this on on, on your dive itinerary. So, so you need to dive have uh, like Branson or uh, you know a famous director as your dive buddy if you're going to do. That. Well. I, I- no, they say that you can dive it with permission from the Canadian government. You know, it was an American ship which went down in Canadian waters. Um, this what this has been the most investigated shipwreck of all time. Um, when it went down, it was short. It, it was not lost for long. They, they, the Coast Guard found it was sonar, I, I believe, within a few days of it sinking. So it was never truly lost. Um, but uh, you know, they did some dives on it using the uh, newt suits. Um, submersibles, a lot of investigation trying to figure out why it went down. Um, the last time it was scuba dove was in 1995, and they uh, removed the bell from the ship, which now sits in the, uh, the Maritime Museum at Whitefish Point, and they placed a plaque on the ship <clears throat> and held a, a service there for, 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 for the victims of the, of the shipwreck. Um, since then, the Canadian government has... Uh, Deemed it undiveable. They uh, added in their legislation. They have a, um, you could say, Maritime Heritage Act, where they have the right to uh, state that various shipwrecks are off limits to divers. I know they've um, done this with the uh, the Scourge. And was it the Hamilton Mac? I think you were telling me about these a while back. There's, there was... there's two of them that are close together, and you're right. Was that was that the one with the submarine in the rigging? Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's an interesting story, but we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> yeah, squirrel moment. Yeah, but the, but the, the, they initially had uh, put the law together to protect the Hamilton and the Scourge, and they added the Fitzgerald to, to, to that group. So, uh, like I say, you cannot dive, but although at, at 535 feet to the bottom, I don't think there are very many who would. Um, you know, it is certainly within capabilities. You know, it, it was scuba dove in 1995, and there have been advancements since then. Um, you know, uh, I know people with rebreathers who would do it if they were if they're permitted to, but uh, it is the wish of the families not to dive it, and the law exists today, so uh, it's not recommended to go out and dive this baby here. Um, ship the ship is in two pieces. The uh, bow rests upright. The stern um, separated by, I believe, 400 feet and lies upside down. Um, been a lot of speculation as to why it's in two pieces. You know, some say it broke up on the surface. Some say it broke up on the bottom. Um, you know, re- read the articles and make your and draw your own conclusions there. Um, but you say it's not one that one which we can dive today. But it is the second most famous shipwreck in the world. When you start googling looking shipwrecks, yes, uh, Titanic's more fam- more famous than Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald's number two. Yeah. 
I, I certainly believe that. I mean, who, who else has a song by Gordon Life? <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually Googling today, looking up uh, you know, what the uh, different shipwreck songs that were out there. And uh, you know, every, every list had um, a Gordon Lightfoot song, either one or two, very close. I was, I was kind of surprised. There's a song by Harry Chapin Carpenter about uh, about the uh, about the band on the Titanic that uh, listed as number one on quite a few of them, actually. So, but that is our shipwreck of the week. The Excellent. Thank you very much. My pleasure. But unfortunately, no charters going out anytime soon to the to the Fitzgerald for diving. It sounds like the. Most of the reasoning behind the not diving is the wishes of the of the surviving family members. You know, of course, everyone was lost on the ship. You had 29 crew members went down on the boat. Um, interesting enough, I went to a program tonight by Craig Rich um, about uh, shipwrecks on the Sunset Coast. He seemed to point out that 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 29 number that's a real common number for uh, casualties on ships. Um, almost there's almost like a, a be aware of the number 29. If you're the 29th person getting on the boat, maybe you might want to get off. So it's like people die in threes, and if it's on shipwrecks, it's 29? <laughs> That's what Greg Rich was talking about. Not, not, not that he's a superstitious guy, but there's just an odd coincidence of being so many uh, losses of 29. So. Yeah, now, now, you mentioned Craig Rich. You, you, I understand you went to a uh, speech he did. This. Yeah, he did a show up at the uh, Laudit uh, Museum up in Grand Haven on uh, shipwrecks this evening. Shipwrecks on the, on the Sunset Coast, and he, he basically came down the shoreline. He did a, um, a no, he, sp- he spoke on wrecks going back from the Porcupine in 1812 up to the Seamar uh, in 1980, and he featured um, a half dozen wrecks in between. Very well done program. Um, you know, Craig always does a good job with these things. He's a very experienced order. He, um, he he knows the subject material. Lots of good photographs. He puts some music along with it there. Um, one of the things I really like about his organization, Michigan Shipwreck Research Association, is that they really do bring a human touch to it. Um, you know, they really do a fine job of bringing that story home about the losses, the casualties, the pain. You know, the the, the relatives left behind. Um, you know, they, it was a, a wonder. It was a great show great show excellent well that's good i'm always glad when people can get together and talk about shipwrecks underwater i know they had to lay out some more seats because more showed up than were anticipated it's a good show well anybody get any scuba diving in this week well i think kevin's got the most time again this week i mean he's got a triple decker in there wow a triple decker well i i did three dips um i went over to lake huron um i don't know why looking at the weather last weekend and the weather looks fabulous for going out diving. A little bit choppy on this side of the lake, but uh, you know, looking along the what the wave forecast was for it's north of Chicago or uh, you know on uh, uh, the, the near shore of Lake Huron. Just because with, with that westerly wind, unfortunately this time of year on our side of Lake Michigan, it's kind of hard to get good diving weather just because the wind. The, by the time the wind smile across the lake, it's, it's, it's picked up so bad. But decided to go over to Lake Huron, contacted a friend. Over there, see if you want to join me, and he was available. Um, Tracy Click and his wife Lindsay joined me over there. Went out and dove the uh, the Regina. Some pronounce it Regina, it's spelled with an I, so people say Regina. Um, and also the uh, Charles Price. Those were uh, two ships lost in the 1913 Armistice Day storm. Those would have been on my list to dive. Um, the Regina is a marvelous dive. If you can get there do it uh 80 feet deep um very much intact but upside down ship is broken in the middle um there's 
a great deal of penetration available for qualified divers. Uh, I did a double dip on that. I posted some pictures on the Mud Club Facebook and on my Facebook. Um, pictures are of, uh, of Lindsay. Um, we did about a, I don't know, just shy of a 30-minute dive on it. Then I came up with her and Tracy and I went back down again. I didn't stay for an awful long time with Tracy. I'd use up most of my air. I had a big tank, but I used up most of my air with Lindsay there. Um, Tracy did a pretty extensive dive on it. And we headed down to the uh, the Charles Price, which is about 13 miles to the south of there. But the wind was in our favor, so on we went. Um, I don't know. There's kind of a curious history between those ships. Uh, you know, apparently uh, some of the uh, – no one survived on either ship. But there were bodies from Price found with life jackets on it from the Regina. From, from, from the Regina. Um, or vice versa, I'm not quite sure, but it was, and there were bodies from one found in the other's lifeboats. So there may have been a, a, a rescue attempted between these two boats. No one's going to know, gonna know the, 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 the details of it because the, um, you know, there were no survivors on either boat as well. Um, you know, sometimes um, people will pilfer items off of the bodies on shore. And then they'll put them back on the wrong bodies. But uh, there was just too much of this going on for it to look like that. Uh, it looks a great deal as though these crews had some kind of interaction with each other during the storm. And we'll never know because everyone was lost on both boats in, in uh, 1913. But great dives. The Charles Price is upside down as well. Pretty broken up. I guess it got dynamited being in the, in the, in the shipping channel. But still, um, half the ship, there's half a ship there. Um, very cool dives. We enjoyed them both. Tracy and uh, Lindsay make great dive buddies and good tour guides as well over there. So had a good time. Yeah, great. How about you, Mac? Did you get in the water? Yeah, we got a river diver on Sunday, I believe it was. I think we had four or five people. I got to go back and remember who, because everybody sort of scatters a little bit because some go in up at the pipe, uh, some go down, you know, down by the uh, kayak entry. Uh, nobody went across because the current was a little fast and the pipe is over. I saw that the water was over the, the pipe. Yep. So most everybody, I just went from there all the way back down to the yacht, you know, the uh, kayak launch, but found that same little spot that had car parts. Uh, and I think I did post some pictures of what we got out of that one. I found a watch in the compass and uh, I think Maribeth found a, you know, those big long measuring sticks they have for how deep the water is, the river. Mm-hmm. She found a, one of those, which was unusual. Really? Uh, I think Rob was collecting shells. Uh, no round bottoms today, but last week, in that one little area right down from the uh, kayak launch, we have now found five round bottoms. So that's Just down from the kayak launch. I'll be, lo- I'll be looking there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look for the places that's got the uh, large holes dug, and there's like five or six pipes out there that are in line with the current. And I don't know what they're hooked to, but they're like three of them are maybe eight feet apart. Just find one of those because you're going to need something to hang on to. You need to tie yourself off because the current was fast enough. And that's why people just dug holes and the bottles were found three feet down. But they were nice. You said they were three feet down. Yes. Uh, That is under the surface? Yes. Ah, that is is quite a... Yeah, and you're talking maybe 15 feet from shore. If that. It was a good dive. And we went down to the Nugget afterwards instead of going down to Good Enough. You didn't get to the Good Enough? No. 
We went to the nugget because it's quieter. Oh, that is true. The nuggeter is a little quiet. The, the nuggeter. The nugget is a little quieter. But being a cheapskate, I'm starting to like that. Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the specials. Yeah, very good. Well, I've been cleared to go back in the water, so I'll be looking for an opportunity here coming up soon. Our high school football team is in playoff season, so this is the, I think, second week of playoffs, and we have another home game, so I'll be tied up with that. Maybe next week, hopefully. So we have any dives planned for the weekend? We're getting a lot of noise here for some reason. Yeah, it's, it's uh, road noise all of a sudden. Oh, okay. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I didn't think you'd notice. <laughs> yeah. Maybe when, it, uh, hopefully we'll see how I can edit it. Maybe with that, I'll, I'll quiet down. Well, I'll, it, I'll go ahead and pull over. I'll pull over in a minute. I didn't, I, I didn't think you'd notice. So, well, okay. We're, we're getting close to the end. We've, we've gone way longer than a normal podcast. But thank everybody for hanging in there. Certainly appreciate our, our listeners as we get through this post-election election week and uh it's almost safe to turn on the tv without hearing ads uh, in fact i haven't done it in the last couple of days is there are they still doing ads or are they using up some budget and just poking people in the eye anyway i've not been watching tv <laughs> yeah i don't blame you uh but uh thanks to our listeners uh we always appreciate any five-star reviews you do on itunes it gets more listeners into the show uh you can follow our website www.scubaobsessed.com we're on twitter at scubaobsessed on facebook facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed and we'd love for you to donate to our patreon account uh, more people each month are donating and we certainly appreciate it. it gets us able to do some things like improving our audio and we'll be moving to video here pretty soon so go to www.scubaobsessed.com click on the links of patreon and give us a little bit of a donation one dollar three dollars whatever amount you can handle and like to thank our nitrox level divers and above currently that is vanessa homiak and scott halbert are both nitrox supporters certainly appreciate them donating and, and this is where my mind always goes blank every week because i feel like i'm forgetting we had quite a full show uh mac you have anything you want to plug before we get out of here no i'm good for now dive club meetings next tuesday excellent how about you kevin well yeah i want to plug uh Support your local dive shops. It's always good to get a bargain online, but those bargains online are going to fill your tanks. Also, want to encourage everyone to uh, use your local libraries. Um, keep, keep those guys going and let them know you appreciate them. You know they're, they're working hard for us, and uh, we, we need libraries. You can't find every, you cannot find everything online. And I heard somewhere that not everything you read online is true. Yeah. Well, and, and I did get some comments back when I said all librarians are hot. So I guess they, I don't know if they wanted me to put a disclaimer saying some aren't, but, uh, I haven't seen that at least in the last 20 years. They're all hot. Maybe it's just me getting older <laughs> and, they, and they seem that way. So certainly appreciate that. And your local dive shops now, if you want a good deal, it's time to get in there. At least in the Northern Hemisphere, we're getting into that off time of the season. And I know our local sh- dive shops such as Wolf's have deals on dry suits, which will extend your season. So go in there and some of the shops are doing deals where you get the dry suit and maybe you can talk them into giving you a discounted rate on the, the dry suit class. It doesn't hurt to ask. Um, I can't promise they'll do it, but it's worth getting into in there. Uh, and we certainly appreciate the dive shops such as Wolf's uh, donating. We had our ecology dives and uh, they gave everybody who participated a free air fill. Card. Card air card which is 10 air fills actually so certainly appreciate that thanks go to wolves are you ready for that time of the show Never ready. okay and this one's been sitting a while and i haven't reread it over so i'll apologize in advance 
A diver who was also a farmer stopped by the local Harley shop to have his bike repaired. They couldn't do the work while he waited, so since he didn't have live far from the shop, he decided to walk home. On the way home, he stopped at the hardware store, bought a bucket and an anvil. He stopped at the livestock dealer and picked up a couple of chickens and a goose. However, he had a problem. How to carry the entire purchase home? The feed store owner said, well, why don't you take the anvil and the bucket, carry the bucket in one hand, put the chicken over each arm and carry a goose in your left and your other hand? Hey, thanks, said the diver who went out the door. In the parking lot, he was approached by a little old lady who told him she was lost and if he could tell her the way to 1603 Mockingbird Lane. The diver said, a matter of fact, I live at 1616 Mockingbird Lane. We can take a shortcut down the alley and there'll be no time. The little old lady looked him over cautiously and said, I'm a lowly window without a husband to defend me. How do I know that when we get in the alley, you won't hold me up against the all, pull up my skirt and ravish me? The diver said, holy smokes, lady, I'm carrying a bucket, an anvil, two chickens, and a goose. How in hell could I possibly hold you up against the wall and do that? The lady said, well, you set the goose down, cover him with the bucket, put the anvil on top of the bucket, and I'll hold the chicken. Oh, <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have to cover the chicken's eyes, of course. <laughs> Wow. Glad I, I'm glad I didn't read that one in advance. I don't know if that one would have made it. <laughs> so until next week, go out there and get wet. And, and be safe. Don't go into the alleys. And, and have fun. <laughs> it kind of goes without saying. Maybe I should have given you the road noise. The, the, the road noise for that one. <laughs> I'd be curious if you get any comments on that. <laughs> if Jim was here, he'd say no chickens were har- harmed in the. That's exactly Maybe. what I thought Kevin was going to do. Yeah. <laughs> or, or or corrupted, I should hope. So, oh, support your local chickens. <laughs> Call recording has been completed. <laughs> oh, cool. This is an adult broadcast, so what the hell? <laughs> I got the PG rating on there just as a, a cover. See, we, we fake people out because we go so many times and it's so calm, and then you get one of these. I don't know. Aren't, the, the jokes you choose are uh, usually a, you know, a little beyond risque. So, uh, <laughs> of course, when you look at what most diver humor is, that's kind of oh, hard. Yeah, if you've been on a dive boat. Yeah. After about two idea. dives and a little narcosis, then you know, everything's fine. Yeah, and you know when, when when you got ladies on the boat, the women are more raunchy than the guys are. Uh, so, uh. Well, I mean, isn't that the common complaint about uh, divers? Uh, is that you know we're the people stripping naked in the parking lots, changing gear? Yeah. Well, one one of many common complaints about divers. So, <laughs> oh yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're we're pretty well frozen, so there's not a lot to see at that point. So. Yeah, the, the shrinkage. Oh.
Está calpulpa de la 